You're listening to MHD Off the Record South LA Highlights, where I, Siobhan Taylor, speak with local organizations, small businesses, and individuals doing amazing work in South LA. Here, we uplift and highlight their work while keeping you informed of the resources available in our community. On this episode, we speak with Gloria Medina, Executive Director of Strategic Concepts and Organizing and Policy Education, also known as SCOPE. SCOPE's mission is to build grassroots power to create social and economic justice for low-income, immigrant, women, femme, black, and brown communities in Los Angeles. Their work includes civic education, coalition building, and developing campaigns around community needs. Gloria's leadership has been instrumental in developing strategies for long-term systemic change to address economic inequities and climate impacts in South LA. Enjoy the show. Welcome, Gloria Medina. Hi, thank you for having me here. I'm excited to have you. So let's let's go ahead and talk about it. So let's talk about Scope and how it was founded. How did it begin? Who's, first of all, let's talk about who founded Scope. Absolutely. So Scope was founded in 1993. So that means that it's our 30th year anniversary. We're celebrating, commemorating all the work that we've done for 30 years. Congratulations. And um, and that we've been a presence in South L.A. Uh, for that long. Um You know, 30 years ago, after the L.A. uprising, um, we were founded. We were formerly known as Agenda. Uh, Many people still call us Agenda. I remember when you were Agenda. Yeah. And um, for those who don't know, we are located on Florence Avenue near the corner of Western. And so we've been there for at least 20 years. That's our home. Uh, That's our community. And, um, you know, from the very beginning, um, it was a vision and and an experiment uh, that really gave birth to Scope. uh, And it came from Anthony Thickpen. Um, Anthony Thickpen, a longtime South L.A. leader, organizer, um, he actually started some of his work as a student organizer, of a mem- as a member of the uh, Black Panther Party, and really just doing work around economic justice and really looking where government, whether it's at the local level or at the federal level, really prioritize investments. And when we say economic justice, we talk about having opportunities for upward mobility for folks, right, to get out of poverty, uh, what we call pipelines out of poverty. And so a lot of times, you know, um, government is prioritizing police or other things that further harm our community. And since our inception, we've been working on, like, making sure that the investments are coming down to our, our folks in South L.A. and that there's opportunities for good jobs, and so that was the the original vision. I love what you're saying because a lot of times I think people resort to the idea that, you know, not even improvements. It's the idea that the only thing we can do in communities like South L.A. that are black and brown is police them. Mm-hmm. That's how we keep, for example, communities safe. But there really isn't a conversation about economic justice and infrastructure. And that's what you guys talk about. Right. And that's why we, you know, 30 years ago, we I used the word um, earlier, experiment. We still think of our organizing efforts of our work as an experiment. Um, because I think it's that it's breaking kind of the framework or, cra- or breaking um, the way that we talk about solutions for problems, right? Let's talk about 
um, other alternatives or other solutions beyond policing, right? When we say safety, when we say opportunities, um, let's talk about ways that transform our community. And so we're still experimenting um, as our world is changing, right? The economy is changing, the way we organize is changing, the way that people interact with one another, especially after the, the pandemic. Um, I think that's we have an openness to figure out what is the best way to connect with people, what resonates with people, um, ways that we can engage them so we can learn from them, right? We're learning from community members in terms of what are their priorities now in 2023? How has that changed from 1993 when we first started? And so it's an experiment really about learning from community. And I think what grounds us is this vision and this mission to uh, shift power equations, right? The folks that are at the forefront, the folks that are first impacted and most impacted for what, you know, in terms of whatever issue area are the folks that are usually not at the table to create solutions. And so um, that's how we think about balancing the power equation. You know, it's interesting that you say that because I also feel like during the pandemic, before the pandemic, but really during the pandemic, because so many things happened during that time, including the murder of George Floyd, for example, which called for, for example, the defunding the police, mm -hmm. right? And even before that, there were already conversations about disinvesting from police and policing in jails and prisons and investing more into infrastructure, investing more into mental health services, investing more into addressing the needs of the community. Mm -hmm. And I think what you're talking about highlights so much of that change um, because the conversations from the community are even changing. Because in the 90s, people were talking about the police, right, as, the, as though this was the only way we could create change and create safety. Economic justice, mental health services, access to education, all these conversations have been so different now. And I think the pandemic and I think the situations that happened during that time definitely lend way to that conversation. And I think what you guys are doing now, I mean, especially you guys can definitely, I mean, you guys are, because I get your calls. So I know you guys are capitalizing off of it because I get I get the calls still. And you guys are still mobilizing residents around these conversations. And that's something not only to be um, highlighted, but it's something that I, I'm hoping we can see grow. In fact, I have confidence that it will. I just saw, in fact, I just saw a tweet because you, you're talking about government. I think one thing we've also done in South LA and in LA is we've started to elect more people to make some of these changes. We've recently had, of course, Mayor Karen Bass, but we've yeah. had Lola Smallwood Cuevas, right? Exactly. In fact, I saw a tweet from Isaac Bryan um, where he said basically kind of what you were talking about. And he said in his tweet, I refuse to look at communities with underfunded schools, no grocery stores, limited public health infrastructure, environmental hazards, a rising unemployment rate, and think the only public investment we can make is more police. Safe communities are thriving communities. Exactly. I think it's really about looking at what this, how we want to center this work. How do we want to center our efforts, right? Um, I, I totally agree. I think some of the conversations, we, we always say this internally at the organization, some of the conversations that we're having now, even with elected officials about what is possible or what we're asking for, could have not been possible to have those conversations even before the pandemic or even, you know, 30 years ago. So we are moving the needle, right? We are moving the needle in terms of really designing what equity really means, right? And, and for us, it's really 
um, beyond justice, right? It's really thinking about the years of disinvestment, right? And we can go way back to the beginning of this country and how the, and what principles this country was founded on. But even looking in the 70s and the 80s and really looking at the uh, level of just crisis that our communities have really lived in. And, and I think all of those experiences and that history really has helped us establish a, a, a different a paradigm, a different conversation of saying like, that doesn't work right? Over-policing doesn't work. Um, investing in um, in overdevelopment of our community members when it's not center and solutions grounded by community, that doesn't work. Not inviting people to the table to help develop those solutions, that also doesn't work, right? And right. so as we've been spinning our wheels, sometimes investing money and throwing money in, into solutions that really don't produce any different results, I think there's now an openness uh, to really have different partnerships between community-based organizations, with labor, with government, to really dig deeper and say, what do we need to do to really make a difference? And I think, again, um, for me, is like we need to ground it in equity, and it needs to be through a lens of racial justice. We cannot, there's just no way we're going to get to a better place or better solutions if we don't talk about race and we don't talk about the decisions that we've made in the past based on race. Now, that's a heavy conversation to have, especially in L.A. right now, Yep. because we still have Kevin DeLeon sitting on that seat. Mm -hmm. And we know what conversations have come up because of that, especially in places like South L.A. So when we talk, when we say we need to have a conversation about race, I noticed even on your website and and in your bio on your website for the organization, you definitely center the fact that this is a black and brown organization. Why was that so important for you guys to highlight? And why do you make sure you center the fact that there are needs even specifically for the black community? Right. You know, we 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 share this community. South L.A. is home to black and brown residents and families and children. We go to school together. We live side by side. And I think it's important to um, really harness that power that we have, that potential of, of, of power of uh, multiracial, multigenerational power. Unless we come together, we're not going to be able to create change together. And I think it's something that is really important to note also is that if if we're not united, then the oppositional forces take an advantage and want to then create um, animosity among us, right? And they want to um, uh, they want us to play the game of blaming each other for the situation that we're living in. When in reality, you know, we need to really look at the unity between black and brown and our experiences. There's similarities, there's also differences, and we need to really honor those differences, those experiences that are different, and, and how we got here to South LA for by different channels, by different ways. Um, but at the, end, at the end of the day, we are all looking for a better um, opportunity for ourselves, for our children. Um, for for us, um, scope at the center of who we are, our identity is we're a black and brown uh, base building organization. And I think with everything that's going on in the city right now, which is very disappointing to us as an organization um, and our and our grassroots members, is that it it really doesn't reflect who we are as a community. We have been doing thirty years of coming together. Uh, bridging, um, making those those bridges between our communities, black and brown. And then words, right, that are coming from our leaders are so very painful and hurtful. And, and they're not helpful. If we let it, it could like just, you know, 
push us back. Uh, all of the work that we've done, all of the progress that we've done, um, could really be impacted by by, by that, that type of leadership. So we believe, right, that our our elected officials, that uh, our governing bodies need to represent uh, the principles that we live by, particularly at SCOPE and with the members that we organize. Absolutely. I, I love how you said that. I think what people don't realize, especially in a place like South L.A., is it is pretty much, especially in the 8th District, it's pretty much half and half, black yeah. and brown. Yeah. And in order for us to be able to be successful, we're going to have to work together because we're all, we're all dealing with the same fact that there's no grocery stores or we're dealing with the issues right. around we don't have enough trees or green space or, you know, right. we're, we're dealing with it together. Excellent. So I absolutely agree with what you said. And thank you for that. Let's talk about your journey into Scope. You've been there for 15 years. You've been executive director for two of those years. Exactly. So let's talk about how you even got involved. How did you start in Scope? Yeah, so it's amazing that um, just the other day I was, you know, just dawned on me. I've been there for half of the life of the organization. I, you know, just took a moment to kind of that settled. Um, but yeah, the organization has been active for 30 years. I've been there um, since 2007. Um, and the 15 years have gone by so quickly. And people ask me, like, why have you stuck around so long? And I always say, it's just the love for community building and um, the engagement and just the power that we see in folks that some for some people might not seem powerful, but they are powerful. Their voice is powerful. And so that keeps me motivated. I am uh, an Angelino native. I um, am first generation born in Los Angeles. My parents are immigrants from Central America. And uh, I was born in South LA, but lived um, in like the mid-city area. And um I became a, a single mother as a teenager, uh, straight out of high school. I found myself, um, you know, a young woman uh, with a child and trying to figure out what I was going to do with my life. Uh, but really, I think at that age, also reflecting, like, how did I get there, right? Like, how did I get in a situation where, where, you know, I was vulnerable. Myself and my son, our future was vulnerable. And so um, I, you know, I just made a commitment that I wanted to work with community, particularly with young people. And so I began that journey 30 years ago. Uh, I've been working with community-based organizations for 30 years. Um, the first 15 years, I, I worked in um, Boyle Heights area, uh, working around public health with young people. That was at the height of the uh, HIV pandemic and doing a lot of education around prevention. And um, and then later working with families that had been impacted by violence. And so providing case management and counseling and also doing some workforce development, um, support services with young people. And that was the journey. Wait, so you started off doing direct service work. Direct service Before you even work. got into policy. Be yes. Wow. And, the, and the reason why I'm saying that's amazing, because just my experience having worked also both in direct service and public policy and advocacy, um, sometimes those two factions don't always get along. Yeah. I know you've seen it. Yes. yes. <laughs> I, I think it's like, you know, having been in both spaces, I think as a, as a service provider, and one of the reasons why I transitioned from service provision is that every year you're fighting for a smaller piece of the pie to um, fund the services that you know are important for community members. 
And then you see the same families coming over and over into your into your center with different problems that really come out of the same root problems, right? And so you're like, there needs to be, you know, I, I can provide services, I can provide counseling, I can be there for community members, but something has to change about the system that we operate in. And and so I got to a point where like, this is not enough. I need to figure out what else I can do, how else I can contribute. And so I, just to say the transition was huge, right? Um, I think I had obviously my my values. I was pol- politically conscious, but I would say the best thing that could have happened to me on a personal level was to land at Scope, uh, because my journey, my political consciousness journey, my political education journey, my skills to be able to really um, organize and educate community member and help lead members through their own political consciousness and really understand policy was through my engagement at SCOPE. Wait, wait, before we get there, because I feel like you're saying, you actually said a lot, at least a lot of things for me that I'm like, wow, there's so much here. How did you, before you got to SCOPE, because you were already asking the questions before you got there Mm -hmm. is what it sounds like, because a place like SCOPE doesn't attract you unless you've already started, the wheels had already started turning. Right. Mm -hmm. That's what it sounds like, at least in your experience. Where would you say your political consciousness really began? What really got got you there? Yeah. Thank you for that question. Um, And I think this is important in terms of who I am, my identity. So uh, my father is from Guatemala and he's indigenous and um, he experienced a lot of racism as an indigenous young man. Um, in Guatemala and immigrated to the United States in his early 20s. And um, uh, I think he identified himself as a revolutionary in Guatemala during the height of like the Civil War. And he had that experience. And he came here always thinking that, you know, he would go back someday. You know, he's been here since the 60s and he's still here. And of <laughs> course, you know, he has a family here. And so he, he did grow his roots here. But Really, I think that political consciousness started at home as a young girl when my pa- my father in particular shared his experience of what it was to be an indigenous person in a country where the majority of the population is indigenous, but there's still so much racism. Um, and so um, that really like sparked uh, questions in me that really sparked um, just a, a framework where I began to question, you know, the education system and and question, um, you know, the operation of our city and how people make decision. Um, and so I would say that, yeah, it, it started at home. It started with, with my father. So you already had a foundation to begin with. Mm-hmm. So your wheels were already turning. Yes. Even when you got into direct service work, that was an aspect of, I would even say personal education, where you got to see the results of the impacts of policy, right? Yes. You're, and you're working directly with people. You see how you, how you have to help people, educate people, inform people. That's, that's great. And direct service and being a service provider. But then you were like, wait a minute, there's too many babies coming down this stream. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. People, people don't know the, the stream metaphor. It's a it's a metaphor we talk about in sociology all the time mm-hmm. where, you know, long story short, there's women at the bottom of a stream. 
There's babies coming down the stream in, bas- in baskets. Uh-huh. Women are hustling at the bottom of the stream to get these babies out of the bath. Like, what's going on? There's these babies. Got to save these babies at the end because they'll drown. We got to yeah. get these babies out of these baskets and out, out of the stream. And this one woman goes all the way to the top. Says, well, wait, where are these babies coming from? Mm-hmm. And that person goes to the top and says, let's go figure out how, where these babies are coming from and how do we stop it? Yeah. But at the same time, we can't stop saving the babies at the bottom of the stream because they're still coming. Mm-hmm. But we still got to figure out what's going on at the top. So both sides are needed. We got to provide the service. Yeah. But it sounds like you, while people were also providing services, you said, I got to go to the top of this stream yeah. and see where are these babies coming from? And how do we change What's happening so we can prevent babies from coming down the stream? Exactly. The the work that we do at Scope, I feel like um, the way we define like the the policy change work is that it's systemic in nature, right? Like, and 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 that's what we need to look at. We can continue throwing money at. Um, you know, work that 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 you know services, which which is which is needed, um, and a lot of folks depend on services just for their daily survival. Um, but we can't operate like that. A, a, a you know, a person can't live off of charity, right? Of whatever somebody just decides, like I'm just going to give this so that you can have you know some counseling or some bus tokens or maybe a voucher for a hotel. We know that that's great. We know that it's needed. Crisis intervention is important. But the reality is that how do we change the system so that our people don't find themselves in that situation, right? Right. So that they have career pathways, so that their pathways, so that they can be healthier and they can have upward mobility, economically speaking, uh, and they can be safer and that they can live in a neighborhood where they feel proud of it because they have the infrastructure that they need. Absolutely. Yeah. How do we reduce the number of people dependent on that charity? Absolutely. Yeah. Um, so currently your organization is doing a lot of work around environmental justice, which I believe goes hand in hand with economic justice. And I'm sure that's part of your work, too. Can you explain what environmental justice is and what it looks like for a place like South L.A.? Yeah. Um, and I appreciate you say saying framing it like that, right, in terms that it goes hand in hand when people uh, sometimes are confused, like, well, what is Scope doing? We've known that Scope has done workforce development and economic justice work, you know, since its inception, and now you're involved in climate and environment. I, the way that I the, that I describe it is that we're in that intersection, right? Um, they go hand in hand. We know that climate and environmental impacts and harms that we're not only um, experiencing in South LA, but now it's beyond, right? It's 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 a, a crisis. Um, something's got to give. Something's going to change. So there is going to be a transition, right? Whether whether we want to continue de- denying climate or not or accepting it, there needs to be a transition because the way that we're operating is not sustainable anymore. And so what we believe, the way that we really landed in focusing in climate and um, environmental justice was that we want to make sure that as we're transitioning our folks, our black and brown folks, folks from South L.A. and other low-income communities in Los Angeles, for example, are not left out of that transition. Um, how can we make sure that there is... Um, that the health of community, our community members are prioritized, that um, jobs that might come out of this transition period are going to be for community members, right, including the training that is needed, right, for these new jobs, for this new economy uh, that will address climate and environmental threats. And so that's, that's why we've been doing this work for about 
10 to 12 years in terms of focusing in how do we make sure that as government is looking at investing, right? And we know like our federal government, the last couple of years have identified massive investment for infrastructure and climate. How do we make sure as that if as that is coming down the pipe for communities like South LA that it's being used effectively and that it's being used uh, to address the needs of South LA community members, not only for us to have better air to breathe or reduce greenhouse gases, which is great, but also how does that provide them an opportunity to be part of this economy? Because there's going to be jobs and they probably will go to other communities as they usually go, right? They'll be training for other communities um, and there'll be jobs for other communities and um, economic mobility. But we need to fight to make sure that our folks are also part of that equation, right? And not only that they're part of it, I'll, I would push one step further and say that they're at the forefront, right? Because these are our community is a frontline community. And when we say frontline, we're the first and most impacted. And so as we're the first and most impacted, we also need to be the priority when we're talking about solutions. And so, you know, SCOPE has been... Over the past 10, 12 years, we really have um, sharpened our skills and um, our knowledge around climate. And we're looking at different aspects of climate. We're looking at air, air quality. We're looking at water um, access, uh, particularly in a place like Los Angeles in California that we've been in a drought for so long. So how do we how do we become smarter at making sure that we are using water and capturing water effectively? And um, reducing greenhouse gases, creating green spaces. Um, and the other piece that I'll just mention also, well, there's a couple, but um, eliminating some of the harm. And we can talk a little bit more about the work that we're doing around facing out urban oil drilling. Mm -hmm. And the last thing that I will mention also is, which is really important, is energy equity. We know that as we're changing um, in terms of the way that we use energy and the type of energy that we're using, um, that we need to make sure that our folks can afford and access that energy. And all I have to say is any of us, we all we have to do is look at our water, our power, and now our gas bill. And we know that that hurts, right? Yes. It's, it's super expensive. And so if we're talking about people being able to stay in South LA and afford a home, to call this place a home, they need to be able to afford a roof over their head, but they're, they also need to afford the water that runs into that home and the electricity that keeps that home warm or cool, particularly right now that we have, you know, extreme weathers in both, right, the cold right. and the hot, and so at the heat. And so um, we definitely see there that intersection and that need for us to prioritize uh, South LA voices. You know, you, you hit so many points. Again, you're great because you give me so many things to think about as you're talking. I'm going to go back a little bit, especially to the economic justice, environmental justice point, um, and, and especially the conversation around money coming down the pipeline for infrastructure and making sure that we're included in that and connecting that to the conversation around affordability to stay here. One of the things I think is also important, and it sounds like a big part of what you're talking about as well, which is we can't just say we want these changes infrastructure changes without including the fact that we need the careers and the money to stay here to benefit from those changes because they can make infrastructure changes and then we can't afford to stay here. So it's important when we're talking about 
economic justice and environmental justice that we're also talking about. We want to benefit from the clean air. We want to benefit from the green space. So economic justice means that those jobs that you guys are bringing here go to the people who can build careers off of those jobs not just give us, it's like, you know, when they're building a stadium in Inglewood, right? Right. They're, they're saying, we have targeted local hire where you can pass out tickets and popcorn. Mm-hmm. That's not enough money to keep you living in Inglewood. Right. No diss to Inglewood. Right. I'm, I'm going to give them respect. Right. But I'm just saying. Yeah. So you have a targeted local hire program. You say, well, we're going to hire from the community. Are these jobs that will keep them in the community as the property values rise? Right. Exactly. So I think what you're talking about when you talk about environmental justice, you're saying on top of all this wonderful money you're putting into the community, are our residents going to benefit from it? Right. I, I would say that makes me think of the fact that our our grassroots. So so just to say, Scope is a membership based organization, and we have residents who are committed, who are the fighters, who are the real, the heart, and the soul of Scope. And so we engage them in every aspect of the work that we do. And so we have deep conversations with them. And what you just said reminded me of something that I hear from our members. They're like, who are you building that for? That's their question always. And, you know, I think it's related to the point that you just made that, you know, they, they feel that they they have the power to advocate. You know, they give public testimony and they'll show up at City Hall or they'll show up at the state capitol. They'll do whatever they need to do because they're committed to make sure that um, development that's community focus and community base is happening, that investment is happening in the right places. But they always have that question is like, who is this being built for? Right. And so they always say, Gloria, we want to make sure that we're not fighting uh, for something that's being developed or built that is not for us, right? So uh, as an example, right, we fought um, to phase out oil drilling at the Jefferson yes, let's, let's talk about it. Let's go ahead and get into yeah. it. Let's go ahead and get into it. Yes, talk And about so it. we've been doing that work for over six years, maybe more. I can't even remember, maybe 10 years we've been doing that work. It's been She's like, ooh, it's hard. been so long. Six, it's 10 years, something work. like that. Yeah. <laughs> I hear that. Because we have big opposition. Oil, right? They're just not going to leave quietly. And they got money. They got money. But we got people power. That's right. And so people have, I would just, I just want to just acknowledge that this work around uh, facing out um, urban oil drilling in South L.A., really started at the community level. I mean, this has really been a grassroots campaign. So it didn't start with SCOPE. It didn't start with our coalition members. We are part of Stand LA, which, which stands for Standing Together Against Neighborhood Drilling. And we've been working together for a number of years. But it didn't start with us. It started in neighborhoods where residents, community members started saying, hey, there's something here that's not right. Why are we feeling sick? Um, what is what is the correlation between the way that we feel the illnesses, cancer, blow, uh, uh, nosebleeds that are unexplained, unexplainable? What is the what is the connection to this oil drilling site down the street or next to my house? And they started organizing, and then we came in as community based organizations to actually organize it and and in a very official structured way. And so um, we have one. Um, so after many years of working when together, you say organized. One, describe what that means. For- so we actually um, at the end of last year we were able to win a ordinance. Um, 
um, the at the county level. Um, so there's been wins both county and city level, uh, where uh, both um, have passed ordinance to uh, face out oil drilling. That's huge. Um, South L- there are so many oil drilling sites in South LA. Sometimes we pass by them, we might not notice them. Maybe they be, they're behind homes, behind parks, and other sensitive areas. They're not necessarily visible to the eye if you're just walking by, but if you look closely, there are many that are close to community members and children and families. And so um, that was a major win, right, to be able to get commitment from both the county and the city to say we're ready to take care of our community and to make sure that they're healthy and face out oil drilling. And so um, the Jefferson site, if anybody is familiar with the Jefferson site, um, the Jefferson it, oil drilling site. Oh, yeah, the mm-hmm. Jefferson oil drilling site. Um, if you go there now, if you drive by, it is leveled off. It is completely gone. Um, All right. Yeah, I remember j- just to say that I think like last year in the summer, we did a visit to the Jefferson oil drilling site. And I hadn't been there since maybe a year before. And um it just like made my stop, my my heart just stop. We got off of our vehicle and to see that it was an empty field now was just a demonstration of the power that's possible when black and brown people get together and they fight for what's right. And so in the context of what I was uh, speaking about, when people speak about like, we did that, right? They feel proud of the fact that they were able to clean up that site. But now there's a second phase of what's going to be built on that site. What's going to replace that oil drilling site? And that's when I get that conversation from community members of like, Gloria, we need to make sure that it's something that's being built for us. Not from people that are going to come in from the outside because now it's safer and cleaner, exactly. right? Because it looks nicer. But are we building for community? Are we building with equity in mind? Are we building... Uh, thinking about putting community first. And so, you know, that's a challenge, right? right. Uh, because we're we're fighting for improvements. We want to have a better, healthier, nicer um, South LA with parks and with nice infrastructure. But at the same time, we need to make sure that it is for our people. So before we close out, let's let's talk about that. When we talk about building a more equitable Los Angeles, what does that look like for South LA? Yeah. So um, we, we talk a lot about like climate resilience. Um, and, and I, I want to say that when we think about climate resilience or it makes me even think of economic resilience, health resilience, and basically is for us resilience is how can we prepare a community so that they can withstand and, and um, you know, survive a crisis. I think um, COVID is a perfect example, right? You know, it's, it was a pandemic that wiped out so many things. Our community has changed. So many people lost their jobs. Some people lost their home. It just, it just, it was just such a blow for, for so many folks. And so we think about that. If another pandemic was to come our way, how can we prepare our community? particularly South LA, so they can be resilient, so that they can withstand. So what are the structures that are put in place that are a safety net for people so that we're taking care of each other? We talk a lot about taking care of each other, taking care of community, making sure that there's the structure and the safety net necessary. So that means 
you know, in, in, in practical terms, that means resources, infrastructure. And, and I think at, at the level of the work that we do, skills and leadership development for community members to really move those campaigns forward and that they can be the voice and the leadership and they're the policy makers and the policy thinkers and they're the solution makers, right? And so that for us is re- is resilience. And, and then also just to say that we're organizers, right? So for us is... Um, creating relationships. For us, organizing means creating relationships with people at a very basic level where um, I know people in my community by by name. I know where they live. Um, I, I know what their priorities are, what are the things that they're struggling with, and we can come together because we genuinely care for each other. And so uh, those relationships are built by, you know, the organizing efforts that we do. We do door knocking. We canvas community. Uh, you know, we do a lot of it in mm-hmm. CDA because that's where we're at. But we also focus on uh, Council District 9 and Council District 10 and other areas of Supervisorial District 2. But we really, you know, do the door knocking. It's like we're not going to be able to do this work in our building. Mm -hmm. It takes us going out. And when we say us, it means our staff, our organizers, our outreach workers, but also our grassroots leaders. They go with us and we do the door knocking and we talk to folks about what we're doing. And then more importantly, we ask them about what they're seeing in their own neighborhood, what's impactful for them, what's their own priority. I love that. Um, yeah, so that's the that's the best answer I've heard. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's very thorough, and I think that it speaks to the work that you guys are doing, and it's 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 something that I think people really are gonna feel. They, they I think they'll relate to a lot of what you're saying because it's like, yeah, it's about being on the ground. It's about being a part of this movement, and that's part of what helps to make it equitable. Is we're a part of the conversation, mm-hmm. not just people making decisions for you, exactly. creating things for your community. And it's like, will I even benefit from it? Um, and also, I like what you talked about resilience. An equitable community is also a resilient community. Yeah. Regardless of what happens, we can get through it. We can survive it. We can support each other, and we're gonna also benefit from the new things that come in. Beautiful. Thank you so much. Thank you. I appreciate you for joining us. How can people support the work that you're doing? Any upcoming events that people can support? Yeah, absolutely. So I would say, first of all, I would, you know, invite folks to come to our center. Um, There's nothing better than doing this work face-to-face together. Uh, We're um, at 1715 West Florence, again, near the corner of Western um, and we have events there, uh, just coming up, we're going to be having an Earth Day celebration that's grounded in racial justice. Um, and so we'll be giving more information now, but if you just want to, you know, you can, um, sign up for our emails or we, we send them regularly and you can find out of the events that are going on. Uh, we're on Facebook, uh, Instagram and, and Twitter. And so you can find us there. We keep, uh, folks informed through there in terms of events that are happening, workshops. We do a lot of educational workshops, opportunity for folks to just come and have conversations and contribute their thoughts, contribute their own experience, um, and be part of the solution. So yeah, check us out on on the on the social medias or <laughs> in person. Um, yeah. 
I got you. And we'll have all this information available to all of our listeners in the show notes. Great. Thank you so much, Gloria Medina. We appreciate you for coming in and being our South LA highlight. Shout out to all the organizers at Scope. You guys are doing an amazing job. Keep calling me. I love it. They call me and they're like, hey, we got this going on. We got this action going on. I'm like, however I can support, I'm, I'm with you. So thank you so much. And I appreciate the work that you guys are doing. Um, as a person who's a, re- a longtime resident, almost lifetime resident of South L.A., um, I've always known about your organization ever since it was called Agenda. Yeah. And um, I'm really just really happy to know that you guys are out there on the ground doing the work. It's something that our residents are should be really proud of. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you for listening to MHD Off the Record. And special thank you to Felicia, the poetess Morris of Morris Media Studios in Lamert Park. For more information, please visit MHDCD8.com and follow at MHDCD8 on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Don't forget to rate us five stars, subscribe, and share with a friend.